0: What about Bob? Hilarious 1991 comedy where Bob Wiley, played by Bill Murray, is a very lovable, but a very troubled man who suffers, actually is immobilized by multiple phobias. So Bob is afraid of everything, which makes it difficult for him to even leave his apartment. Despite therapy is making very little progress, Exhausted by his high-maintenance condition and his constant invasion of privacy, his therapist refers him to the egotistical Dr. Leo Marvin, played by Richard Dreyfus, who believes his recent book, Baby Steps, can make all the difference in the world. Now, Bob feels pretty good about their first session, but it's clear to Dr. Marvin that Bob is going to be a total nuisance, stopping by his office for unplanned visits, calling his house after hours, showing up unannounced for dinner, that kind of stuff, which becomes a very big concern as Dr. Marvin prepares to take his wife and kids on their regularly scheduled month-long family vacation to Lake Winniposaki. What does Dr. Marvin do? Well, he tries a number of different things, but finally tells Bob to baby step out into the hallway. Baby step onto the elevator, and baby step out of the building, taking a vacation from all of his problems. Now, what could be better than that? Can you even imagine a vacation from your problems, getting in your car and driving away from your financial worries, hopping on a bus and escaping your family's constant relational problems? Or even taking a train to avoid the doctors, the nurses, the hospitals, and all of your health issues and medical problems. Just because you make the decision to leave your problems behind. So you're going to baby step to the airport. You're going to baby step on the plane. You're going to baby step right out of the country. Taking a vacation from all of your problems. Here's the issue, and here's why that is absolutely terrible advice. Your problems don't take a vacation. So even if you're able to get away for a few days, they're still going to be there when you get back, right? Your spouse is still going to be there. Your kids are still going to be there. Your family, your relationships, your boss, your finances, your debt, your health, your cares, your concerns, all your problems, they're still going to be there when you get back from vacation. And inevitably, they've gotten worse, which is what happens in the movie. Bob decides if he's going to take a vacation, he might as well take it with his psychiatrist. And his family. So to Dr. Leo Marvin's dismay, Bob shows up at Lake Winniposaki and he brings all of his problems right along with him. Be clear. The Bible never encourages us to take a vacation from our problems. Because it doesn't help. Instead what the Bible says is take your problems to the Lord so that you might think rightly about them with a godly, helpful, realistic, and eternal perspective, knowing that God causes all things to work together for good, For those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose, which enables us to rejoice in the glory of God and to rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been generously given to us. So this morning, Exodus chapter 5 through chapter 7, is a picture for us of what not to do with our problems. So we're not to blame shift, we're not to grumble and complain, and we're not to take a vacation from our problems, but instead, we're called and commanded to baby step our way right back to God. To be reminded of His Word, to be encouraged by His promises, and to be those who patiently endure the difficulties of life, knowing He is in control of all things and is causing all things to work together for good. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. As you're flipping, let me quickly review As you know, Exodus is the continuation of Genesis where God made some pretty incredible promises, including a great name, great nation, great blessing, and great land. As we saw in chapter 1, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, and yet God's promises are unstoppable. People are multiplying. Chapters 2 to 4, God is raising up a deliverer, Moses, who is clearly protected and prepared, equipped and encouraged to free God's people from enslavement. And to take them all the way back to the promised land. How exactly does chapter 4 end? If you would, go ahead and look there with me. Chapter 4, verse 29 says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke, notice, all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And notice, did all the signs in the sight of the people. What is the result? The people Believed When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affi- affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Now, I want you to imagine yourself as an Israelite that day, right? Put your, put your feet in their shoes. So you're hearing Aaron proclaim that God is going to liberate you. So, After 400 years of being enslaved, oppressed, and having your newborn baby boy slaughtered after 400 years of dwelling outside the promised land under horrific persecution, you're hearing God say, He's going to deliver you. He's going to liberate you. He's going to free you. So, So salvation in the midst of judgment. That's the proclamation from Moses and Aaron with incredible signs of confirmation. What an incredible day that must have been. And what overwhelming joy must have filled their hearts. Can you even imagine the celebration? I want you to feel the celebration. Because redemption has finally come to the people of God. Moses and Aaron are promising that everything's going to be okay. That's the context in which a affliction increases. Starting with the request of Pharaoh. Exodus 5 verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So short and sweet, but also super clear. God's declaring to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron to let the Israelites go, to to, to liberate them, to, to free them from slavery right now immediately. How does Pharaoh respond? Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they, that's Moses and Aaron, said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or sword. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. And you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, so that they may labor at it. And notice, pay no regard to lying words. So there's Pharaoh's reaction. And here's number three, the reality of Pharaoh's affliction, verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people. Now, pause. I don't want you to get confused. The taskmasters are Egyptians and the foremen are Israelites, right? So the Egyptian taskmasters and the Israelite foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten." And we're asked, why have you not done all your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Let's make sure we understand all that's going on here, starting with the fact that Pharaoh doesn't recognize God as God. I mean, he asked the question, verse 2 Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice, or follow his commands, or, or do as he says? Now, that doesn't mean Pharaoh has no knowledge of Israel's God. It just means he has no desire to submit to his authority, which makes total sense, doesn't it? I mean, in Egypt, the people considered Pharaoh to be divine. Let it be written, let it be done. So he was a God as unto himself, with sovereign authority to rule and reign over the entire earth. So who is this God to compel him to do anything. From his perspective, it was blasphemous to command him to do anything, and from his vantage point, everything Moses and Aaron are saying are all lies. Look again at verse 9. Pharaoh says, pay no regard to these lying words. Lies, lies, lies. All Pharaoh wants is for these Israelites to give up these foolish promises of God. But despite his ignorance, his arrogance, and his self assured rejection, he actually is asking the most important question than any of us could be asking this morning Who is the Lord? And why should I obey him? Now, helpful for you to know over the next few chapters, that's exactly what Pharaoh's going to find out, and he'll ultimately concede that this God is God, and there is no other, but not until he's utterly destroyed. So already, we're seeing a very important lesson, that knowing God isn't simply having information about God. Instead, it's being in a right relationship with God, where you actually acknowledge His authority in your life, and you act in accordance with His commands. I mean, do you realize all sorts of people have information about God? I'm doing all these interviews right now for the Air National Guard, for people requesting religious exemptions from the COVID-19 vaccinations. Tons have absolutely no problem whatsoever describing themselves as spiritual, saying they believe in God or at least acknowledge a God, the existence of God. They have some knowledge about God, but that doesn't mean they're in a right relationship with God. I mean, I want you to be very clear here. A general knowledge about God is not a solid saving knowledge in God. Most obvious example is kids who grow up in Christian homes. They know very well who God is, right? They have have tons of information about Him. They know all of the stories. They know all the miracles. They know all of the events. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're believing in Jesus, Where their faith in Christ causes them to turn left instead of right, choosing to live gloriously different than the world and in joyful obedience to the one true King. Those are two radically different things. And we need to be clear on it. So if you're here this morning and you don't want to give up control of your life, you have no desire really to submit to King Jesus, then in a sense, you're just like Pharaoh. You're asking, who is the Lord? And why should I obey Him? And you need to know this morning, that is not a safe place to be. Pharaoh is going to be judged for how he responds to God. So you're either for God or you're against God. You cannot be neutral on God. You cannot take God whenever you want. Pick and choose when you submit to his authority. That's not an option. Pharaoh rejects God's authority and he asserts his own. You see that in verses two to nine. He declares the Israelites are just being lazy, right? They're just trying to get out of their work, they're neglecting their burdens. So he commands them to make bricks without having all the materials, namely straw. So they have to get their own and yet generate the exact same output, which is absolutely insane. So things go from bad to worse. I mean, Israel's situation was already miserable, but now the work is harder and the abuse is stronger. Verse 14 says the taskmasters are beating the Israelite foreman. Why? Because they're not getting it done. So they're being pummeled for reduced production. So what happens? Well, as the affliction increases, B, the attitude decreases. Follow along as I read verses 15 to 23. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But Pharaoh said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. Verse 20, so they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Now that's not a very nice thing to say. Verse 22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he, Pharaoh, has done evil to the people. And you, God, have not delivered your people at all. Now, are you catching the progression? Because Israelite foremen start by going directly to Pharaoh. What exactly is their accusation? Essentially, they're saying this is insane. You're beating us for not generating the same output, but that's not even possible. Verse 17, the problem is your own people. It's your own unrealistic demands and expectations. But obviously, Pharaoh's not listening. So they escalate. They escalate from Pharaoh to Moses and Aaron. And they start giving the brothers an earful, don't they? Verse 21, may the Lord look on you and judge you. Why? Because things have only gone from bad to worse. Thanks to your help, thanks a lot. Now we stink in the eyes of Pharaoh. And you're giving him reasons and weapons to kill us. Clearly an anger management problem. Right? They're obviously unleashing their frustration, blaming Moses for their problems. Instead of what? Instead of trusting that maybe, just maybe, God is in all of this. Maybe God is bringing about, in all of these details, His good and perfect plan of redemption. In number one, God's good and perfect timing. How does Moses respond? You really are hoping Moses will do better, right? What does he do? He complains as well. Verse 22, he goes to the Lord, which is good. That's a good decision, right? Maybe he, he read the book and he's taking baby steps on his way back to the Lord. Baby steps into his presence. Baby steps to share his cares and his concerns with God. That's good. But then, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you send me? Feels like we've Went back to the previous chapters. Why, Lord, have you not delivered your people at all? Oh, my, Moses, what are you thinking? God is not the problem. God is sovereign. And God is good all the time. And God is in the process of accomplishing His great work of redemption for you. And for your people. So what's the problem? The problem is unrealistic expectations. Isn't it? Because God was super clear, wasn't He? I mean, look back at chapter 4, verse 19. Look at what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But... I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's exactly what Aaron shared. Chapter 4, verse 30. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken and did all the signs in the sight of the people. And what does it say? The people believed. You see, the problem is unrealistic expectations. The people heard all the news of God's glorious deliverance. They saw all the miraculous signs and they thought to themselves, this is going to be quick and easy. This is going to be once and done. But that's not what God had promised he promised slow and painful. He promised a process. First suffering, then glory. And the people don't like it. So they grumble and they complain. And they grumble and they complain right up the ladder. And Moses does the same. Why did you ever send me? You have not delivered your people at all. Wow! It's almost as if they're believing the lies of Pharaoh, the seed of the serpent. Remember verse 9. Pay no regard to these lying words. Whose lying words? God's lying words. Lies, lies, lies. God's not going to save you. God doesn't have that kind of power, God's not even able to do so. In fact, I would ask you, did God really say that He would? Lies, lies, lies. Don't you see, the problem is the Israelites are not trusting the promises of God, rightly understood So this delay in fulfillment is causing them to doubt God's goodness, God's ability, God's faithfulness, God's covenant, and God's promises. So when they were promised blessings, they believed. They were filled with joy. They they bowed their heads. They they worshipped. But when troubles came, difficulties arose, and persecution started, they immediately complained and questioned God's man, God's plan, God's purposes, and God's promises. So let me just pause and ask, does that sound like you in any way? When you get what you want, is everything between you and God glorious? Everything is wonderful. God is so good. Praise the Lord. He's so good to me. Gives me everything I want. Worthy of praise. Your relationship is good. You enjoy the church. You want to grow in godliness. But when things don't go well, what happens then? What do you do When God doesn't do for you the things you think he should do for you. What happens when God doesn't give you what you want when you want it? And let's just say these things you want are good. So we're not talking about sinful things. We're talking about the reconciliation of a relationship. We're talking about the salvation of friends and family. We're talking about finding a spouse in order to love them well. We're talking about finding a job so you can provide for your family. We're talking about a ministry where you can jump in and serve other people. What happens when you don't get the things you want when you want them? Do you criticize God? You would never do that, not directly. Do you grumble? Do you complain? Do you withdraw yourself from the Lord? Do you distance yourself from God and his people? Do you start feeling like you're alone? Nobody understands you. Do you spiral downward into discouragement and into utter despair? I mean, let's be honest this morning. It's not, is that true of you? Isn't it more like, which one of those is true of you? Because we're all guilty, aren't we? But do you know what that reveals about our hearts? It's not good enough to just say, yeah, I shouldn't complain. No, we're going to go deeper than that this morning. Do you know what that reveals about your heart? It reveals that we're loving the blessings of God more than we love God Himself. Because if we're only trusting God when things are good, but not trusting God when things are hard or difficult or even discouraging, it means we're not really trusting God as we should. God is God. We are not. And God's timing is always perfect for everything. And God is always perfect good. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, which enables us. When we know that to be true, it enables us to rejoice in the glory of God and to rejoice even in the midst of suffering, knowing That suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. Because God is God. And He will always deliver on His promises. So the Israelites were given a glorious opportunity. That's how you should read this text. The Israelites were given a glorious opportunity to trust God, to glory in God's goodness and God's grace and in God's perfect timing, which they don't understand, but they don't really need to understand. They could have just patiently endured while rejoicing in the glory of God, knowing it was from God's hand and for their good but they don't. So how does God respond? Does God apologize here? Does God say to them, I'm so sorry that I have not met your expectations. That's all my fault. I'm so sorry about that. Please forgive me. No. Instead, do you know what God does? God declares who he is, what he's done, and he reiterates his promises for the future. So he gives Moses and the people an even greater understanding of who he is. Remember the original question Who is the Lord and why should I obey him? Here it is, number two God's promised deliverance. Follow along as I read Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. See how that's A, a restatement of God's promise from all the way back in chapter 3. So nothing has changed, Moses. My plan, my promises, they're all in place. In fact, Pharaoh is the one who's going to send you out himself. So what does God do? He gives them B, a restored vision of God himself. Continuing on, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Notice as God Almighty, that's El Shaddai. But by the name, or by my name, the Lord, that's Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I heard the groanings of the people of Israel from the Egyptians hold as slaves and have remembered my covenant. Verse 6, "...say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment." Verse 7, "...I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob." I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Did you notice how this entire section starts and ends with God declaring, I am the Lord. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. Verse 6, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Verse 7, and you shall know, I am the Lord. And in conclusion just in case you missed it. Verse 8, I will give you a promised land as your possession. Why? Because I am the Lord. Okay, so just think about this, the order of events here in verses 1 to 8. God grounds His glorious promise from verse 1 in the fact of who He is. Is. So this whole section is just one big glorious self-revelation of the God of the Bible as He moves from the past to the present to His marvelous plans, purposes, and promises for the future. Notice verse 3, I am the Lord. I appeared, past tense, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How? As God Almighty, as El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord Yahweh, I did not notice, make myself known to them. I also established my covenant, heard their groanings, and remembered my covenant. Those are all in the past tense. Why does that matter? Because the covenant-keeping God of Genesis is going to reveal himself in even more significant ways than he did in the past with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Israel, you're going to know God better than even the patriarchs. Did. Now, in your Bibles, when you see the word LORD in all caps, that's the name for God, Yahweh. So here God says He revealed Himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, that's El Shaddai, but not as the Lord Yahweh, the great I Am. Now you could ask, isn't the name Yahweh used in Genesis? Well, of course it is. But he's saying that Yahweh revealed himself in Genesis primarily as El Shaddai, God Almighty. What does that mean? It means he revealed himself as the Almighty God who accomplishes certain things. For example, he gave Abraham and Sarah a child when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah's womb was as good as dead. That's El Shaddai. He protected Jacob from his father-in-law Laban. That's El Shaddai. He took Israel safely down to Egypt and made them multiply. That's all El Shaddai. That's God Almighty who provides for His people. But now in the present tense, God is going to flip that around and the Lord God Almighty El Shaddai is going to reveal Himself in greater ways as Yahweh. Now again, why does that matter? Well, because God is going to start making good on His promises that we only just heard about in the book of Genesis. So El Shaddai will show himself as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, and Moses, Aaron, and all the Israelites are going to experience real-time, high-definition color, Dolby surround sound technology, right? They're going to experience God. The full import of who God is and what God's promised and all that God is going to accomplish through His great work of redemption through the Exodus. So Yahweh is revealing Himself in even fuller and greater ways that He did to the patriarchs. So yes, they knew Him, but He's revealing Himself even more. Right now, right here, greater revelation, salvation in the midst of judgment. And that's obvious, isn't it? Because he actually bringing to pass the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just look at what he says. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. How will I do that? With an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Notice the intimacy. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. You understand, this is a redemption back to the days of Adam and Eve when God walked in the cool of the day and He was their God and they were His people. God continues, and you shall know that I am the Lord better than the patriarchs because I will actually bring you into the land that I swore to them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you. It will be your possession. Why? Because I am the Lord. That's who I am. I'm Yahweh. So who is the Lord and why should I obey Him? He's the Lord God Almighty who's showing Himself to be the great I Am because He's fulfilling His promises right now, right here, right in front of you. So how should we respond to this great God? We should trust Him. And we should obey Him. And we should know without question that He's causing all things to work together for good, which enables us, even when we don't understand it, to rejoice in the glory of God and to rejoice even in our sufferings. God is God and there is no other. Yesterday, today, and forever, past, present, and future, a great revelation, a great reality, and a great reward which God promised and God will certainly bring to pass. It's so glorious. And yet, how do these people respond? Aren't you just hoping, maybe even praying that they'll get it this time. I mean, they had just heard a glorious revelation of who God is, past, present, and future. Aren't you just hoping? They'll trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, than to trust And obey. That would be great, wouldn't it? Well, see, response given to God's promise. Look with me at verse 9. After this glorious revelation, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. So essentially, the suffering is too great for them to believe that God is really in this. Too great to rest in His character. Too great to trust in His promises. How about Moses, verse 10? So the Lord said to Moses, Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? for I am of uncircumcised lips. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now notice how the next section in your Bible is a seemingly random, insignificant, not sure why it fits here, genealogy. Now I say seemingly, Because, of course, nothing is random or insignificant in the Bible. But just skip past it for a second and pick up the text in verse 28 where it says, On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I said to you. But Moses said to the Lord, notice verse 30, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So essentially, we don't skip a beat if we jump from verse 13 all the way to verse 28. So then why the genealogy, verses 14 to 25? Well, Moses tells us, verse 26, it says, These are the Aaron and the Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. So the genealogy is just another way of saying, these are the guys. 100% confirmation. I mean, essentially, we've got their birth certificate right here. I mean, remember, right? Moses just appeared out of the desert after being gone for like 40 years. He comes out of the desert and he's claiming to be the one God had called to deliver his people. And currently, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but things aren't going very well. They're literally getting pummeled. So you kind of get a pause in the action to say, yeah, yeah, but this really is the right Moses (laughs) and the right Aaron. Let's just have confirmation. Confirmation at this point in time in the narrative is helpful. Okay, back to C, response given to God's promise So again, Israelites aren't listening to Moses. Moses isn't listening to God. He's certainly baby-stepping in God's direction, but he isn't fully persuaded, isn't really buying what God is selling at this point in time. But God pushes forward anyway. Why? Because God is God and there is no other. He says, I am the Lord. I will redeem these people with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. God is revealing Himself. He's revealing His plans, His purposes, and His promises, which is great. Wonderful, extremely helpful. But we still have this itty-bitty problem called Pharaoh, who doesn't seem to be on board with God's plan. In addition, we have these people who aren't really trusting that God really does cause all things to work together for good. So as we transition to Exodus chapter 7... We're moving from God's perfect timing and God's promised deliverance to see God's revealed glory. If you would, follow along as I read our last seven verses. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart Though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. How am I going to do that? By great acts of judgment. Now what exactly is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about, right, the ten plagues that are going to take us all the way from chapter 7, verse 14, all the way up to chapter 12, verse 32. But in order for that to happen, God says, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart? God does. That's what it says. It says, God is sovereign over all things, including people's Hearts, Which, by the way, Proverbs 21 confirms the king's heart is like streams of water in the Lord's hands and he turns it wherever he wishes. That doesn't mean Pharaoh isn't responsible for what he does. He is and it doesn't mean Pharaoh doesn't deserve judgment. He absolutely does because he's a willing participant who's totally responsible for his actions. In fact, just look at chapter 8 verse 15. It says, when there was a respite from these great acts of judgment, he, he Moses, hardened his heart and would not listen, just like the Lord said. So please do not feel sorry for Pharaoh. He hardened his own heart and is totally responsible for his actions and the consequences he will experience, namely judgment. But behind All of that is a sovereign God who rules and reigns over all things because God is God and there is no other. And although Pharaoh is doing what he wants, at the same time, he's ultimately serving God's redemptive purposes. And of course, that's not a new idea. That's exactly what happens in the New Testament with the Lord Jesus. Jesus. The Roman guards, the Gentiles, the scribes, the chief priests, and the Pharisees all acted wickedly when they put Him to death on the cross. But we know that was all done according to God's sovereign plan to accomplish His great work of redemption for our salvation. But what's the ultimate purpose? Why does all of that matter? So that we might know God that we might know the God of the Bible. That's B, the great revelation of God's glory. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. All of this took place so that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So the whole point is for God to reveal himself so they might know I am am the Lord. And they might see God in all of His glory through His great work of redemption. But for us this morning, it's just a foretaste, isn't it, of a much greater work of redemption that God has already accomplished in and through the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross in order to bring us out of slavery to our sin and the consequences of judgment which is death. Also, he could give us eternal life through the one true Passover lamb that might dwell so that we might dwell in God's presence for all eternity, where he will be our God and we will be his people forever. And it's here where I think we can find our most helpful application this morning. Because yes, it's true. God's salvation promises are not coming to pass in the way Israel would have expected. So they're complaining. They're questioning God's man. They're questioning God's plan. But to them, what happens? God says, watch what I'm about to do. Watch the deliverance I'm about to accomplish. So the idea is once they see it, they will know He is the Lord. He's the great I am. He's Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of the Bible. And therefore, after seeing it, they can trust his salvation plan, even when it doesn't align with their expectations. Well, brothers and sisters, haven't we seen an even greater act of God's deliverance? Haven't we seen something so much better than the exodus? Yes, of course we have. Because we've seen Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, if his trouncing of Pharaoh in the Red Sea is impressive, how much more is his trouncing of sin, death, and the devil on the cross? And the glory of the empty tomb. What's the point? The point is we've seen so much more of God. He's revealed Himself to us in greater ways. We've seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth when we've seen the Lord Jesus. So we have no excuse this morning not to trust Him when things don't seem to be going our way. In fact, that's why Paul says in Romans 8:31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? First and foremost, we can trust him with our eternal well-being. I mean, that was Pharaoh's question this morning, wasn't it? Who is the Lord? And why should I obey him? Answer, he's the God who saves. But he's also the God who judges. So I plead with you this morning to bow your knees to King Jesus. There will be no middle ground in the judgment. You're either for him or you're against him. It's either eternal life or it's eternal death. There's no middle ground. I appeal to you. Repent, believe, and be saved. Trust that God will deliver on His promises salvation, redemption, and the glory of the ultimate promised land, heaven, where we will finally be His people and He will be our God for all eternity. Trust Him for your salvation. And for you dear believer where are you struggling to trust God where are you impatient with his plan his purposes and his promises is it your health is it your kids is it your finances your your spouse is it your job Is it your relationships? Is it your future? What is it this morning? Here's a way to identify it if you're having a hard time. Just pay attention to where you're grumbling the most. Where you're murmuring under your breath. (laughs) The Bible never commands us to take a vacation from our problems. The Bible commands that we take our problems to the Lord. And when we take our problems to the Lord, we start thinking. Rightly about them with a godly helpful realistic and eternal perspective knowing that God is in this that God has us right where he wants us to be that God is causing all things to work together for our good which enables us to turn around even in the midst of the difficulty and rejoice in the glory of God. Grab your pen, grab my outline, and write down these instructions. Here's what you need to do. You're going to love this. You need to baby step your way out of here this morning after the congregational meeting. (laughs) And you need to baby step your way right into God's presence. Baby step your way right back to God. So you might be reminded. Of His Word. And you might be reminded of His promises. So that we might be those who patiently endure all the trials, all the tribulations, all the difficulties, all the discouragements of life while still declaring our God is good all the time, all the time, our God is good. Listen to me, even when you don't understand it, our God is good all the time, all the time, our God is good. He's working out all these things in your life for your good and for His eternal glory. May we be a people who trust Him in all that He's doing. Allow me to pray. Father, it's so easy for us to sit back and look at the Israelites and just shake our heads. Yeah, Father, we recognize we've seen so much more of your glory. We've seen so much more of the wonderful salvation that is ours in the Lord Jesus. We've seen how you've sovereignly worked all things that your Son might come into the world. That He might live a perfect life. That we might know that He's God. How? By the signs and the wonders and the miracles that He did. And the glorious sign of His death, burial, and resurrection. Father, I pray that in all that we've seen we might be reminded of all that You have accomplished. And we might be reminded of Your glorious promises so that we might trust you trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in jesus than to trust and obey father do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory we pray amen